finishing up Genesis. So it will be this week and next week. Next week we'll be ending Genesis. So I encourage you this week to continue to read through Genesis 37 through 50. Just read through that again and again. And as you read each chapter, ask this question. Is God in control? Is God in control? I mean, some of you that have been churched your whole life, you just go, yes, he is in control. Of course, that's what my Sunday school teacher taught me. But I want you to truly wrestle with this. As you look at the narrative of Joseph, is God in control? And then each day, look at your own narrative. Is God in control? Because some of you have tasted of suffering and pain in ways I don't understand. And you need to ask, is God in control? And as we read through Scripture, we will realize more and more He is in control. Amen? Praise God He is. Because if He wasn't, I would be dead many years ago. And probably you also. Let's pray before we begin to dig in the Word. Father God, we thank You for the beauty of the Word. We thank You that we have Your Word that became flesh, Christ. And Jesus, we thank You that You dwelt among us. And we are able to behold your glory. And Lord, as we look at Scripture today, we ask the Spirit of God that you move in our hearts and open our hearts so we can come to understand you more clearly as we see who you are. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, again, we want to look at what it means that God is sovereign, that He is in control. Is He truly in control? Last week we looked at the story of Joseph, just the first chapter there of his life, where Joseph and his brothers, his brothers hated him. He told his dreams. There was tension there. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to slavery. Is God in control? Well, gratefully we know the end of the story. We know that God is in control. And it's very important to know that in this, when we look at pain and suffering, that God is in control and humans have free will. How do we bring these two together? Man, my brain kind of just melts there. How do we do that? This we know for sure, even in this story. God does not or take pleasure in evil. We'll see that in Scripture as we go through the Old and New Testament. Yet, wrong is done by the jealous brothers. They're jealous of him. He gets the fancy coat of many colors. They begin to hate him. They wanted to kill him. They sold him. Yet, as we read in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. So we remember that God is in total, complete control of the circumstances in your life. That's easy to gulp down when you win the lottery, when you have a nice day, when it's sunny outside, you get to see the mountain. But when it's cloudy and rainy and storms come and pain, sickness, suffering, how can he be in control? He is in control. And we want these as foundations as we look at the rest of the Old Testament. Because as we walk through the rest of the Old Testament, the children need to know He's in relationship with you. He's made promises. He's trustworthy. 
He is in control. He is sovereign. I have a bunch of books on my shelves. I have a lot of books. Just before I moved here, I got a set of books called The Creeds of Christendom. I can probably guarantee not many of you would grab this book and read it. It's three volumes of all the great ancient creeds. Have you heard of the Apostles' Creed? The Nicene Creed? All these different creeds and catechisms of the early church. And when I got this set, it was on sale. And I just saw, I was like, oh, I love reading. Some of it's in German because they show the original language in Latin, some of that stuff. Some of the Greek I can read, but just, oh, they're just, I love this book. In here, these creeds were written to say this is what we believe. And some of the teachings of it, they, they pen them out to be catechisms, to teach the children. These are the foundations. Don't forget this. I teach that in my household. These are very important things. Don't take a fork and put it in a light socket. Very important foundation in my household. The kids don't do that because there's electricity. They don't understand all the concepts of the voltage and amperage and all that stuff. They know that this can kill you. Another thing I teach my children, never wrap something around your neck and play. Don't take a rope and wrap it around your neck and play tug of war. These are things I teach, foundations I teach my children so they can live. In our lives, these are some of the foundations we have learned from Scripture. This is what we stand on. So let me read one of them. This is the Heidelberg Catechism. Has anybody heard of that one? Not many. Okay, maybe one or two of you, okay? It's, some of these catechisms are so long and so dry at first, but when you read them, they're so rich. Here's what it says in question 27. It says this. In fact, I've kind of rewrote it so it sounds a little bit more so you can understand it here. It says, question 27. What do you mean by the providence of God? What do you mean by the providence of God? Remember last week I even pulled out a thesaurus and said, God is sovereign, he's in control, he's in complete reign, he's the king, everything is under him, right? So here's what they say. What, it's really, what dost thou mean by the providence of God? Answer. The almighty and everywhere present power of God. He is powerful, present, Everywhere. Point A. Whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs all things. Now this is important for you to remember because November is just around the corner, right? And every corner on the road you see signs that are there, have been knocked down. They're just, I mean, you can't even drive without seeing all the stuff. Is God in control even in the election? I'll never forget when I was in seminary, studying deep the Word of God. It was November evening, and we had to vote. And I quickly, I had school all day, and I had to vote. I registered, so I got in my little car, driving, I got to find out. I was new to the area. Where do I vote? I went to the wrong place, and time was running out. And I was like, I got to get there. I got to vote. And I got lost. And I remember pulling up into a church parking lot going, where am I? And then I realized, is it more important for me to vote Or to pray and say, God, you are in control, even if I try and I miss and don't make it. 
And I sat there going, whoa, he's in control. But he allows me, here's that great mystery, to be a part of that. So I better get out there and vote. What a privilege it is to vote. Gratefully, I found a place within three minutes and voted. He's in control. He governs all things. Heaven, earth, all creatures, herbs, grass, rain, and drought. Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health, sickness, riches, and poverty. Yes, in all things, not by chance, but be by the fatherly hand of God. Amen. He's in control. And we'll see this as we go throughout Scripture. And that here's the part that sometimes we miss out on. So what's the benefit of that? What's the advantage? How do we apply that to our lives? And that's why I like some of these catechisms. Here's what they say in the next part of question 27. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? What good does that do to you? Here's what they say. Answer, that we may be patient in adversary. In your struggles, in your sufferings, we're to be what? Patient. Wait in the Lord. And we'll see this in Exodus. He will deliver you. Amen? He will deliver you. I can't wait to get to Exodus. Be patient in adversity. Be thankful in prosperity. And I'll even say, and suffering. And that in all things which may befall us, which may come to us, we may place our firm trust in God the Father, not in the blessings you get. Because if you begin to put your faith in the blessings you get, in the trust in the blessings you get, God will just take that away and realize that's just sand. Trust in Him alone, amen? That nothing shall separate us from His love. There's Romans 8. Since all creatures are so in His hand, and without His will, they cannot so much as move. Amen? God is in control. And that's what we're talking about. So let's begin, as we look at this story, turn to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We'll be, in fact, next month looking at this chapter a few times. Here's a great summary of some of the Old Testament things we've been learning about. Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 2. So here's Stephen. He's being charged, he's being challenged, he's being told, hey, what... Verse 2, to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The, glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. There we are, Genesis chapter 12, right? Verse 4. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Verse 5. 
He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he would, he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham a covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Then verse 9, take a look at this. Because the patriarchs were jealous, remember they're not perfect, because they were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Comma. Some of you guys have a period there, but comma. Look at me. I'm about to read you five words that should alter and change your life forever. Okay? I thought about titling this sermon The Providence of God and the Presence of God in the Narrative of Joseph, comma, the providence and provision and presence of God in your narrative. But I'm almost boiling down to say five words that should and will change your life forever. Let me go back to verse 9 and read this. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, comma, but God was with him. Period. Remember this. In your suffering, in your trials, don't put a period at the end of it. Put a comma. Okay? Because God is with you. Amen? No matter what you're going through, whether it be the harvest time or the suffering time, comma, God is with with you. This is a foundation you need to know and taste of. And that's what we have in Genesis and it carries on all the way to the book of Revelation. But God is with you. He is so with you. So let's go to the story. Turn to Genesis. Genesis 39. Let's go to chapter 39. Yeah, why is it that we, in the midst of joy, can sometimes just taste the suffering more than the joy? A great example is, every day, I've been loading up, not all my kids, but some of my kids, whoever wants to get covered in purple, we load them up in the car and we just go to any corner, and what do we do? We pick berries. You can tell I'm not from here. Some of you lived your whole life, like, not those berries, I'm not touching those things. <laughs> we'll let all, you know, the, the transient people that come here, all the Navy, yeah, they're the ones that do that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm above those berries. But our kids, we love them. We're getting gallons of these berries. 
But this will often happen in the midst of the joy of picking berries. And I have one daughter who she'll be covered in purple, face all covered up, and she'll at the end, she'll go, I've only eaten three. <laughs> yeah, right. Her bucket will have three berries in there, and she just covered yeah, okay. In the, this will happen every time. In the midst of these, they're free. I don't know why we don't go out as a church and pick berries. Come on. They, we're grabbing these berries, and she'll get one, and pop, pop, pop. But always, it'll be like, ow! You know what I'm talking about. That's probably why some of you are like, I'm not touching those berries. Those blackberries are surrounded by those evil, nasty thorns. You've got to like weave your hand in there like, Brick, I got one. Come on, you're all bloody like, oh, berry. Our sometimes little kids, they focus more on the pain and the suffering than that one berry that they've got. Oh, it's so good. Suffering, listen, is not a means that God uses to make us go, oh, I hate you, God. Why? It is a means at many times to bring us to Him. To make us remember you're in control. It's not about me. Now I have the need of God. Because Some of you walk around like this. I don't have the need of God. I'm, I'm in control. But in this suffering, remember these five words. But God is with you. He's in control. Let's see this in chapter 39. So Joseph is taken. Horrible things have happened. His brothers intended it for wicked things. God intends it for good. Let's look at, let's just, I'll try to read through the whole chapter here. Now Joseph, chapter 39, had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Emishalites, who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. Remember that. In fact, in my study Bible, I remember in this chapter, I underlined it four times it shows up. Listen, in this tough, horrible time, Moses makes sure four times it shows up. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And if you forget, one more time, the Lord was with him. Remember that in your suffering. Remember that in your joy. The Lord is with you. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And he prospered. And he lived in the house of of his Egyptian master. Listen to how this is written out. When his master, now his master is an Egyptian, does his master worship the Lord? Does, the, does this Egyptian worship Yahweh? No. He worships many gods. In fact, he worships Pharaoh, who is the god of his mindset. Listen to this. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, who's with Joseph in suffering? The Lord's with him. When even a secular person, when someone outside of the realm sees the beauty of his life and realizes his God is with him, and the Lord, listen to this, that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, 
Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Please listen to this. In your suffering, when you're suffering, and your eyes so easily become on the thorns that have poked your arm, you're like, oh, why? Oh, saw, you know. If you begin to then gaze upon God who controls every circumstance of your life, that's when I believe when you become humbled, as this catechism says, you begin to put yourself in that place of patiently waiting and trusting in the Lord, that's when God will use you in your sphere of influence. That's what he's doing in this life. He blesses him. Let's continue reading. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. Verse 5. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Here's one of my little thoughts. One of my little biblical thoughts I have nestled in me. My prayer is this for our church. Even though we are small and we're starting out and we're starting to grow, my prayer is this, that we would be men and women who have our focus gazed upon the cross and His beauty and His might and His sovereign control. We trust in Him in such a great way that He, out of that, will bless our church in Kitsap County, This sounds crazy. In a couple years, newspapers will be writing about Kitsap County. Because when God's favor is on his people, others will note and take note and like, what is happening there? Amen? And that can start with humble little people such as you and I. And that's my prayer. The Lord blessed the house of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And my prayer is that he would bless this area. He would bless Bremerton, bless Port Orchard, bless Kitsap. He'd bless this whole peninsula because of hungry people seeking him on our knees. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care to everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. You know, sometimes in suffering, we are so easily compelled to either be disgruntled towards God or quickly turn to other things to appease our suffering instead of God. Yet, on the other hand, in joys and blessings, it can even be more dangerous because sometimes we can turn to ourselves and be self-righteous and think, it's all about me because I'm well-built, handsome. He didn't say tall, so I guess it's not me. Okay, well, okay. And sometimes the more deadliest way is being big-headed. And here's the phrase I use. Sometimes we need diet shampoo. We need to shrink our heads down, put ourselves in the right perspective, and put some diet shampoo on to bring it down. Because you think it's all about you. 
and the blessings are, look at me. I'm smart and wise. I can do a business. And look, I'm so... And sometimes things come along to snare us. Thus we have Potiphar's wife. Verse 8. He was the typical American, surrounded by all the stuff anyways, and he gave in to Potiphar's wife. Oh, it doesn't say that. But he refused. Listen, children of God. Listen, people who say, I'm a Christian. When sin comes and crouched upon you, waiting for you, baiting, how many of you say, I refuse? We have too many wimpy Christians today that go, well, I'm working on it. Oh, that's my vice, my struggle. I refuse. I'm done. No more. No way. How many of you are like that? But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted in my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife, he said. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against, he doesn't say master, he's been saying a master, against God. Because when we sin, it's against God. He had the right perspective. Verse 11, sorry, verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Some of you that have different struggles, you need to make your boundaries very strong. I won't even, he's like, I'm not going to even be in the room with that woman. Some of your struggles, some of your things, whatever they are, I'm just going to get so far away, I am completely opposite than what that is that was the thing that entangles me. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, oh, sorry, I'm in verse 11. One day he went to his house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard my scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
I mean, can you imagine a life, and maybe some of you think of your narrative. It was good, I had some good things, then it went tough. Then I, I lost a child, I had suffering sickness, and then things got a little bit better, oh, I'm in this nice household, and then now he's in prison. Five words that they have to change your life. But God is with you. Remember that. The end of verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Do not forget that. Even in prison, he's not separated from the presence of God. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden, here we go again, the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Because, why? The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in all that he did. I'm going to show you a video clip here in a moment. God is with when his people. people. Say time heals all. God is with his people. Don't forget, as we read through this story, chapter 37 through 50, he's in control, he's in charge. And he's with his people. In this we greatly rejoice. Though now we've suffered grief of all kinds of trials. What does the rest of the verse say? Does anybody know? Some of you don't know. Let's listen to this. Here's a story of someone who understands God being in control. When people say time heals all wounds, it's, it's not true. It, you know, you might be able to stuff it for a while, but it doesn't go away. It's just in there. It's like shaking up a pop bottle. Eventually the top's going to blow off. Someone from the outside could look at my life and think, wow, you know, she's got it all together. But I was really dead inside. And I think that's how I learned to wear the mask. I grew up in the country in Wisconsin where I was around all things motorized all the time and I guess when things were pretty crazy I could go out on my motorcycle, I could sing, I could laugh, I could cry and you know the, my motorcycle didn't care. <laughs> I was just feeling in control of something when everything else felt out of control. Back then uh, things were pretty crazy. I just always felt like I wasn't planned, you know, that I was a mistake. I thought it was my fault that my parents were fighting. I thought it was my fault that my dad was drinking because I guess I was just someone or something that they had to deal with because they were so young. But I hid all of this because I didn't want to bother them. So I, I stuffed a lot of feelings. I shut my needs off. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't, I didn't always know what I needed. I discovered that if I drank alcohol, I became more fun. I felt at the time like it helped me not be so shy. I could be this other person that, that I felt like I really was inside, but I didn't, under, I didn't understand that I could just be that person without adding alcohol. 
And so it was kind of just a quiet thing that I did um, that, of course, got worse, became something I did more and more. Um, still being a pom-pom girl, a basketball player, getting good grades in school and really hiding my pain, I started, I was very, very good at wearing masks and I started living a completely double life at a really young age. By the age of 16, I got pregnant and not understanding um, what abortion means or what that truly is, I ended that pregnancy without ever telling my mom about it. You know, I went that day, I made that decision. I saw the baby, which I don't think you're supposed to do, and I started crying, and when the doctor came back in, um, he asked me if I was crying because I was in pain or crying because I was a woman now, and I didn't know what to say to that. It just, none of it made any sense to me. It was just hidden and tucked away, and what I didn't understand is you don't just talk something like that away. Ultimately, as I got older, I realized that that decision was at the core of a lot of guilt and shame and, and low self-worth that I've dealt with most of my life. So I continued on through high school, um, never feeling good enough, never quite pretty enough, never smart enough, because nothing I did would seem to change my situation. By the time I got into college, I was introduced to drugs from one drug to the next drug, to relationships, to um, anything that I would grab onto to just feel better about myself, um, it just was never enough. As I got older and once I became a mom, it became harder and harder to do the double life. You know, hiding it from the girls I always disguised as, you know, you can go stay with grandma this weekend and that would give me the opportunity to start on Friday and, you know, drink till Sunday night. Suddenly, you know, my kids would see me drunk once in a while. I was starting to lose control over keeping them really separate. I started realizing that I, were, I really wasn't hiding anything from anyone, and, you know, I, I might not be able to keep this up any longer. I might have to stop and face it. About that time, um, I had met my husband now, Brian, and Brian's actually invited me to his church. He was going kind of on and off, and he always he said he always felt better after he went, but he invited me, and I thought, well, yeah, I'll go. I mean, I, I hadn't had the best experiences finding a church or learning anything about God or any of that, and I went to church with him that day. and. I sat there in tears that day. I'll never forget the sermon. The sermon was just, he just, certain parts of it spoke to me because it, it spoke about a heavenly father that cares about you and, and loves you no matter what you've done or where you've been and that is about forgiveness and, and all we have to do is accept that love. And what a concept. I mean, I just, he could love me, you know? And there's a reason, there's a reason for all of this. That's when I truly surrendered my life to God and I just, you know, I just said I give up, I surrender. I think that was, that was truly, I'd like to say that the sky opened up and <laughs> light came down and all of that, but, but I, I did feel a sense of peace right away. Like, um, you know what, I'm not in control of it. I haven't been in control of it all along and, and I'm learning about this God of ours that 
he is in control. I don't, I don't have to carry all this on my shoulders. I don't, I don't have to worry about my dad's life and my mom's life and my kids' lives. I mean, God's in control of it. I learned right away that, you know, there is a plan for my life. There is a purpose for me that, that I was planned. I wasn't a mistake and, and that um, God intended to show me that. I can't even describe the relief. It was just like the weight of the world being lifted off my shoulders. And right about that time, we got a chance to do a bike for Discovery Channel Biker Build-Off and um, put a crazy fast motor in the bike and, and decided as a marketing move that maybe we should go race it and it would be a good idea to put a woman on the bike. And I felt like this was a door that opened, so I took the chance having never been a racer before, but having ridden motorcycles most of my life. The first time I was on the starting line of the Bonneville Salt Flats, I sat there for a moment and I prayed because I, you know, was learning how to pray and I just said, okay, God, this is where you have me today and um, let me do your will, you know. Um, I thought for a minute about all the roads that I'd been on and all the crazy, twisted, windy paths that had gotten me to this point today, but here I was, and, and I was doing something that no one had ever done before. No one had raced this kind of bike before, and here were my daughters here with me, watching me do this, and it was a good thing. It was a positive thing. It was a healthy thing, and um, there was no party, no drinking. None of that stuff was involved. This was something new. This was something we had never done before, and and I had this awesome opportunity, and so I just turned it over to God and took off. <laughs> I don't have to have all the strength. I can lean on God when, when I feel like I'm facing something that I just can't do. I don't have to do it on my own. I'm, I'm never alone. I don't have to feel alone anymore. He's, he's always there. I'm Laura Clock and I am second. God is in control. He's with you. Even in suffering and pain, the question is, will you turn to him? One of my favorite verses, passages here. In this you greatly rejoice, First Peter, that though now for a little while you have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, because gold is refined and perishes through fire, your faith will be proved genuine and result in praise and glory. Let me finish the part of Acts 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. Always remember, God is with you. He is present in joy and in suffering. Let me give you a little example of what that's like. When I was in college, one of my jobs was an outdoors guide, a wilderness guide. I was a wilderness guide up in the, the Rocky Mountains, which I loved. And I was a guide also in the Boundary Waters, a place in northern Minnesota where Canada and Minnesota touch. And there's just tons of lakes. And you've got to get canoes and portage them and just all this gear. I was traveling from one trip to another trip, and I stopped by a camp. 
And I saw my friend, his name is Jeremiah. He was a counselor. I said, hey, how you doing? He's got a bunch of little boys. They're probably like fourth or fifth graders. And I pull up in my truck with all my camping gear, all my wilderness gear, and I pull up. I'm just going to hang out with him for the night, and I didn't want to interrupt what he was doing as a counselor. I pull up, and all his little boys gather on my truck, and they're like, ooh, and, and, and he's like, this is camping Cody. I get out there. I'm all like grizzly look and smell like the wilderness, you know, just I haven't taken a shower for quite some time. And, and they're like, wow. And they're kind of like, you know, little four years. Like, well, this guy's great. And he goes, Cody, show him some of your gear. So I pulled all this gear. And they're like, wow. I said, hey, Jeremiah, what are you doing tonight? He goes, well, I don't know. We got a little cabin time. What do you want to do? I said, let's take him snipe hunting. Now, some of you are laughing because you understand what snipe hunting is. I don't know if you do it around here, but it's this kind of thing where you take kids out snipe hunting. There is a real snipe. It's a bird. But you take them snipe hunting, and they spend all their energy looking for this creature that's not really there, and you try to scare them. So let's take them snipe hunting. So Jeremiah goes, Camp and Cody's going to take you snipe hunting. They're like, woo, what's that? We'll tell you later. So we have supper. There's a little thing. They have sports events. And finally they gather. The sun's going down. And we're like, let's gather around by Camp and Cody. And we're going to take you snipe hunting. Ooh, these little boys are all ready. So I explain what a snipe is with the perspective of a worm. It's got big claws. I don't say that part like the perspective. I just get, a snipe, it's got huge claws. And they're like, ooh. It can just rip you apart. Ah! And all these little kids are like scared to death. I don't do this today, but I did it. Don't worry if I babysit your kids. It will be safe. It will be safe. So they're they're all freaked out, but I'm giving them perspective of what a worm would think. It's this big claw to rip you apart, and we have to find it. Oh, they're kind of backing up to Jeremiah. I said, but we need a bait what's a bait? And I explain what a bait is. We need to have something to entice it, to bring it out. And I pull out, this camp had this old like bear jacket, bear skin jacket. And I said, snipes love this. Who will wear the jacket to be the bait? And everyone steps back, not me. But one little kid, his name is Benny, says, I'll do it. Raises his hand. And everyone's like, he'll do it. You bet he will. Oh, we, we, yeah, give him Benny. Benny will do it. This little kid puts on the jacket. You know, he's kind of, it's so big you don't even see his arms. He's kind of flopping and he goes, okay. I said, but don't worry. I will be with you and I'll have this. And I pull out my special forces survival two knife. Huge kind of Rambo knife. They're like, oh, can I touch it? No, no, no. Step away, step away. And there's this huge, shiny, beautiful knife. They're like, oh, wow. And Benny's like, yeah. Camp and Cody's going to be with me. I'm not, oh, no worries here. So we start, the sun's going down, and by God's providence, there's no moon. Clouds are covering it, whatever. It's just dark. We start walking, it's just dark, and we're walking down the path, and I'm like, shh, did you hear that? And they're like, ah, ah, ah. I'm like, yeah, we got them. They're all scared to death. And I reach out to Benny and go, Benny, are you okay? And I literally, I reach out and I touch his jacket, and it's soaked with sweat. This kid is just scared to death. And that's when I made the vow, I'll never do this again. I mean, I felt bad, or I was like, oh, this is so mean. And little Benny's like, ah, ah. I'm like, man, he's trash. This is, oh, what am I doing? He goes, are you there? Are you there? I go, do you got the knife? Do you got the knife? Yes, I got the knife. I got the knife. I got, and there can be no flashlights, nothing like that. Okay, okay, okay. Let's go. And Benny's in front of all of us. He's the bait. But I'm going to be there to attack the snipe in case. And all the kids, we got pots and pans to scare up the snipe. And we're, we're walking and walking. All of a sudden, two kids just break down. They lose it. Ah, they start crying and screaming. I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. Last time I'm at this camp. Little did I know they'd hire me in the future. But 
We're walking, two kids just lose it, like, where's Cody? Where's Camping? <laughs> they're screaming. You know what it's like? You have little kids. They're screaming. They're like, I can't, I can't see, I can't see. They're just, they're like freaking out. They're not knocking over everybody. And I go, I'm here. I'm right here. I reach out my hand, and one of the kids goes, grabs my hand. He goes, oh, I can see much better now. I did not have a switch on my hand that was attached to a big mag light. You know. In the midst of the darkness, this little boy has lost it. He's screaming. He's crying. He might have wet his pants. I'm not sure. But he is... He thinks he's going to die. These two kids are screaming. They're pushing over their friends. I need help. Ah! They grab onto my hand. And his first words, I can see much better now. Listen to me. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. You might be desperate. You might be faking it today. I'll smile like, hey, life is good. But inside, your job is a mess. You have no money. You have sickness. Your kids, you wish this could... Oh! Hold on to the God that will not leave you. But God is with you. It may not get brighter. I don't preach prosperity gospel. Gospel, no way. In fact, it may get darker so he may shine brighter. Reach out to him. Trust him. He is so trustworthy. But God is with you. Let's pray.